Welcome to Reality Check, the podcast that helps teenagers find their own answer to the common question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm Ariana, your host, and today I'm excited to interview Dan Lair, who is an artificial intelligence engineer. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Great to be here. My current job is I work with a team of machine learning researchers and engineers to apply machine learning to currently the finance industry and previously the government. So let's start at the beginning. What did you want to be when you were a teenager? I had no idea. I liked the outdoors and thought I might want to be a park ranger. I liked a lot of my subjects. I didn't like some of them and didn't have any special one I wanted to go into. I really didn't know. So you said you didn't have any idea what you wanted to be. So then what did you major in in college to start with? Well, when I was applying to college, though I liked a lot of my subjects, I wanted to be sure I could make a living. And so I chose engineering. I, I was good in math and science as well as also English and history. And so I applied to an engineering school. I didn't finish becoming an actual engineer. I became a computer science major, which doesn't have to be an engineer because when I took the computer science course, I thought it was a lot of fun. So that's the major I became. And what school did you go to? Cornell. Why? I went to Cornell because they gave me the best deal financially. How does machine learning research work? That's a great question. So part of it is tech. So I started out as a software developer, a computer programmer. And the idea is to get computers to do things that humans do without explicitly programming the computer to do it. So you program the computer not to do a task, but to learn how to do a task. So an example is if you want to program the computer to translate from French to English, you could actually write down all the rules. You know, you know, maison means house and that kind of thing. And we used to do it that way. But now you can train the computer to feed it all these documents that have been translated by humans, or millions of them. And it learns by seeing over and over that maison means house. So it learns on its own how to translate. That's an example of machine learning. So you would give it documents that humans have completed to make the machine do it faster? To make it do it at all, and then to make it do it faster. Or images that humans have labeled. Like when you use Snapchat or Instagram, hey, here's my new puppy. Well, now the computer knows that that picture, all these pixels, has a dog in it. So it can learn to recognize a dog. Got it. And then how do you apply that to finance? Great question. So we would like, for instance, to make sure that people aren't committing fraud, you know, where someone steals your credit card number. And so we want to learn what an honest transaction is compared to a fraudulent transaction. And so we can have the machine tell us, hey, look at this one. This might be a fraudulent transaction. And how do they tell that? Like, Do you scan a bunch of fraudulent? That's a great question. And that kind, the kind I talked about earlier, where you actually tell the computer, by here's an example of a French word into an English word, or here's an example of a puppy image, or here's an example of fraudulent transaction. That's called supervised machine learning. And that's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's, it's not easy, but it's easy to think about how to do it because you give the computer the answer. Sometimes you can do what's called unsupervised, where you don't tell it what it's looking for. You just say, find me some patterns, find me some clusters, and more importantly, find me some outliers that don't match the patterns. And those are the ones you zoom in on. 
Got it. You said that you call yourself an artificial intelligence engineer. So I always thought artificial intelligence was like robots. That's one kind of robots. And that's the kind people mostly think of. But it could be anything that humans do. And a lot of what humans do is thought and thinking and understanding and deciding without physically moving our bodies. And so that's also artificial intelligence. You mentioned that you also work in computer linguistics in the past. Is that just like the same thing as translating? It's a great question. It's, it's part of the larger field of artificial intelligence. But so computational linguistics can be translating. It can be speech recognition. So when we talk to our phones now, it knows what we're saying and understands. That's the second part is natural language understanding. And natural language is like French or Swahili, also called the human language to distinguish it from a computer language, you know, like Java or Python. And so natural language understanding is to understand what the person meant when they said something. And then there's translation. There's also where you can look at an image that has letters in it, words in it, like a picture of a restaurant menu. And you can recognize the words that are in that restaurant menu. That's called optical character recognition. There's also a dialogue system where the computer actually has a conversation with you intelligently. And there are other ways too. But those are basically having the computer talk to you. Now we take it for granted because we all talk to our phones. But for a long time, it was really difficult. What is data science and how does that all fit in? Yeah, data science, it's kind of a fuzzy term. It's using all this data that we have now. We collect so much data just every time we walk around, our phones are tracking that we're walking around. And if we give permission, it'll update that to the cloud. Or anytime we go online or make a phone call or make a text, or do anything that's all collected. And so data science is managing that data and understanding that data, finding patterns in that data. So for instance, back to fraud, you know, one way to detect fraud that somebody has stolen your phone is they don't swipe the same way you swipe, or they don't type in the same cadence that you type. And data science can help us to get all that data to get insights on what's going on in that massive amount of data. It's a little creepy. Oh, yeah. The <laughs> world. Yeah. We should be very careful about the data because, as they say, if somebody is not making you pay for the service you're getting, that means you are the product. Uh, big companies want our data so they can better advertise to us. Good to know. Yeah. So you said that you ended up leaving college as a computer science major, but how did you get into computer science when it was just starting up, I'm guessing? Uh, yeah, and the joke is I literally started programming on punch cards, which you nowadays see in like museums. It was just, it was part of the acquired curriculum for engineers. Oh, there's this new thing called computer programming. You should learn how to do it. Well, it wasn't new to the people in the field. It had been around for decades, but for most of society, it was new. I mean, the, the personal computer wasn't out yet. So I took the required course, and at first I didn't understand it and didn't like it. But then halfway through the course, something clicked, and I realized it's simply just being creative about almost like assembling blocks. Oh, I know how to snap these together and make it do something bigger, like building a bridge with blocks. You get to have the computer do things that you instruct it to do and do something that can be really cool. So everything we do nowadays, even you and I talking through, through Zoom, somebody had to program that, and that was kind of fun. So do you still apply your engineering background in your current position? Not, I'm not day-to-day hands-on. I, I haven't written software or lines of code for a while because I'm a manager of a team that does that. 
but I understand the principles about making sure you have good data going in to get good results coming out, to make sure that the software that you write is easy to understand so you can find the problems in it and you can explain it to others. So the principles of engineering are the same no matter what we're working on. Okay, so then going back to college, when you graduated with a computer science major, what kind of job was, were you looking for to start with? I didn't know. I wanted any job that you know, would make me a living that would be in computer programming. At the time, computer graphics were the new hot thing. And nowadays, we take it for granted in all our video games, but the graphics back then were really primitive. And I had taken a course in computer graphics and thought it was cool. And then a company came to interview on campus because we had this computer graphics course, which was kind of rare. So they hired me. So I started out at a computer graphics company, although I myself wasn't doing the computer graphics. Where did you go after that? What was your path through your different jobs? Well, then, and, and you know, uh, often uh, I've told my kids, don't worry about what job you get. Just get a job and start exploring. You'll figure it out. I told you I wanted to be a, a, like a park ranger. So after a year in my first job, I thought, you know, I don't want to work inside. And so I went back to the outdoors and became an outward bound instructor leading wilderness courses, which was kind of like being a park ranger. So I enjoyed that a lot. And that got me to realize that I liked working with kids. And so I became a school teacher and did that for several years. And then I thought, it's a really hard job being a school teacher. I mean, they, I know you've interviewed several others. It's a hard, hard job. And I thought, wow, can I do this for my entire life? I probably can, but let me go back to software development, computer programming, because you know I know how to do that. So I went back to that. And then I had this love of language and linguistics. So that's when I went to grad school and got a degree in computational linguistics. So my path was kind of twisty. And I don't think it was a problem. I don't think people are supposed to know what they want to be when they're in high school. What did you teach? I taught high school geometry and high school computer science. And then I taught middle school math. Did you have a preference for the age group? No, I think high school, I think the subjects were a little more interesting. The students can be a bit more of a pill. Not, nothing against high school students. I was one myself. <laughs> uh, middle school students are completely energetic and crazy. And that was a lot of fun, even though the subject was a little simpler. So I guess, no, I liked them both. How do you think that your previous jobs helped you with your skills for your current position? Yeah, I, when I had my first job, I didn't quite know what to do on the job. I thought I was supposed to have learned in college what to do on the job. And so I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not doing a very good job here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm not sure what I'm doing here. And then when I got the next computer programming job, I realized it wasn't that I was supposed to know what to do, but I was supposed to be okay at figuring out what to do because the world changes so fast. And so everything I've done, it wasn't so much about actually knowing how to do that job perfectly, but being okay at not knowing how to do the job and just sort of, you know, asking for help and figuring it out. And so now... I just switched industries. I was working for government for many decades. And just a year and a half ago, I went to the finance industry. And I don't know much about the finance industry. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. Then I realized that's okay. It's not that I know it. It's that I am okay with not knowing it. And I can ask for help and just kind of, you know, flounder along. So I think just all these previous jobs gave me the, uh, the attitude that, okay, I can figure this out. Why did you make that switch to finance? 
I wasn't planning on it, but a recruiter turns out that the field I happened into by chance is in demand. And so a recruiter came and gave me a really interesting offer. And I'd been 20 years at my previous company and I loved it. I was really happy with the work and the team, but uh, I thought, well, let's just try this out. And so I tried it out. Yeah. What did you do for government? Like, was it specifically for the linguistic side of it? Yeah, mostly the linguistic side, although at the end, linguistics is part of artificial intelligence, which also includes robots like you talked about and other things like that. So in the end, I was managing a team that did all sorts of things, robots and linguistics. But most of what I did was the linguistics to help the government. And so what are some examples? Yeah, we would, for instance, if the police were trying to catch um, uh, people who were doing human trafficking rings, um, these people operate in foreign languages. And so uh, we would help translate all their, their messages. So the police would have get a court order because they would convince the judge that these people are, are doing human trafficking. So the court would allow the government to get their, their emails and then we could uh, translate the emails to see what they were planning to do. Or this is years ago, currently we're all in COVID, but there was a scare a long time ago called SARS, which is a prevent to COVID. And it wasn't as widespread. And the way it was spreading was uh, small towns in their newspapers around the world would have articles like, oh, the hospitals are full, or we had to cancel the soccer game, or schools are half, half empty. And so what our software did was it pulled down all these internet newspapers from around the world and translated them for the, for the doctors, for the disease specialists, so they could track the spread of the disease. So things like that. So you said that you had to translate these different emails in different languages. So how many languages do you know? Well, that's a great question. I'm, I'm not a kind of linguist that actually translates. I'm the kind of linguist that studies the structure of language. So I'm more of an academic linguist. So personally, I know two languages pretty well and three or four, okay. And then also for the job, I taught myself to read a lot of foreign alphabets. So I got to learn how to read the Cyrillic alphabet used for Russian, the Arabic alphabet used for Arabic and Persian and other languages and, and a lot of, you know, a lot of other fun alphabets. So how does looking at the structure of languages help you in cases like that? The structure of language can help you understand how to translate. There's kind of a debate actually in our field. Do you need to know the structure of language because machines can just like vacuum up all this data and automatically try and translate things. But until a few years ago, if you went to Google Translate and typed in things, it was pretty hilarious what it came up with because it didn't really understand what it was doing. It was kind of like catching things up. But machine learning now is really trying to make it more sophisticated and it's trying to understand the structure of how the words relate to each other rather than just the single words by themselves because okay. words don't occur in isolation. So then going back to your current job in finance, what does a normal day look like for you? A lot of meetings. You know, we'll meet with the team and, and look through the research that they're doing to see, you know, how can we, you know, move the projects forward. So there's some really interesting teams that are look at what else do we do? A lot of it's management, just make sure the teams you know, have all the things that they need, that there's enough you know, funding to hire all the people that we need to. We have to make sure that our, our software is, doesn't have bugs in it. We have to make sure that our software treats our customers fairly. The problem with a lot of data on the internet is, well, the, all this summer, all the racial injustice, 
So there is software that helps judges determine who would be more likely to commit a crime, be released and go back and commit a crime again. And so the judges might give a harsher sentence to people. And this is all software just predicting who would commit a crime again. Well, the problem with that is most, most of the data is on you know, minority communities. So if you're a minority, the data says you're going to be the kind that commits a crime again, not because minorities are more likely to commit crime, but because the data is about minority communities. And also police happen to patrol minority communities more than non-minority communities. And so no surprise, there are more arrests in those communities. And so we want to make sure our data doesn't have that bias built in and that our software doesn't perpetuate that bias. Well, one example is Google Translate, also in terms of unfairness, is our language has, you know, he and she and her and him. Uh, other languages, you know, like Turkish and Finnish don't have that. They have a single pronoun that's, that's gender neutral. So if I were to say, you know, she is a doctor and translate it into Turkish, it would be like they are a doctor because they don't have a he, she. Mm-hmm. If you translate it back into English, it would come back as he is a doctor because most of our language data has doctors as men. So that's a built-in bias. So we want to make sure that our software uh, and our data doesn't perpetuate that bias. So as a manager now, how much actual like hands-on machine learning do you work with? Very little. So I try and talk to my team to keep up with the latest advances and to hear the fun things that they're doing. I try and read you know, the latest articles and papers. So as a manager... I'm not so much creating products or software myself. I'm creating a team that creates those things. So that's mm-hmm. kind of a different kind of create, creative activity. What do you think the best part of your position is? Oh, it's a, it's a toss up. I really like the people because they're really, you know, they're great people and they're really interesting. And I really like the technology because it's just so interesting as well. And I guess the third part is I like the impact you can make in the world by creating these things that go out to the world. And then on the flip side of that, the what's the worst part? The bureaucracy can be pretty mind-numbing. <laughs> and sometimes technology, ever since technology, you know, ever since we invented fire, you know, as, as Homo sapiens or, or, or managed to harness fire or invented wheels, technology has always had a, a, a good side and a bad side. And we hope it's on the balance then for good. But any technology we create, can also do do bad things. Like I told you about, we can we can decide better who to, for instance, give home loans to, but we can also discriminate against giving home loans because our data in the past of those who paid back their home loans was discriminatory. So you want to make sure the technology you create doesn't cause further harm. That's that's the scary part. And how do you do that? Like how do you cut out those biases? That is a great question, which the company which the world is wrestling with right now. Partly, you want to make sure the data is unbiased. And in some ways, it's kind of hard to reduce all bias. It's kind of hard to, like right now, Virginia passed an amendment to reduce gerrymandering, where they they draw these long, skinny congressional districts to make it all Democratic or all Republican or anti-Republican or anti-Democratic. And now we're going to draw, quote, more fair maps. What exactly is a purely fair map? I mean, does it have to be completely circular, completely around a city, completely around a farming community? You know, what, what is it to be fair? Completely half men and half women, half black and half white? You know, what does it mean to be fair? So those are the questions we're wrestling with. And in finance, we want to make sure we don't discriminate against, you know, women and minorities. 
but we also don't collect that data in the first place because we don't want to discriminate against women minorities. So how do we know our, our software is being unfair if we can't check it against those data, which we didn't collect in the first place? So people are really wrestling. And plus, what does it mean to be fair? You ask you know, five students about, was that test fair? You'll get five different answers. You know? mm-hmm. So there's no quote, right way of being fair. So it's beyond technology. It's more into ethics and society and that kind of thing. So I'm guessing there's never going to be one concrete answer that everyone agrees on. No, no, there probably won't be. Just like there's no one best way to govern a country, what's the best form of government, you know? And, you know, why are there so many different translations of the little prince from French to English? Why did there have to be a second translation and a third translation? Because there's no one perfect translation. Mm-hmm. There's no one perfect poem. There's no one perfect painting. It's, it's just all about humanity. So it's, it's hard to get absolutes. If someone wanted to take a path in like artificial intelligence or computer science, what degree or program should they be looking for? Well, first of all, you don't have to get a computer science degree to do, get into programming. You could do almost anything that humans do, whether it's being an artist or a musician or a biologist or an econ- economist or a government major. And you can use computers and software development as part of your field. And so no matter what field you're in, I would simply say, take a computer programming course. It's the intro courses are, it's really easy to pick up. If you can follow a recipe in a cookbook, you can be a computer programmer. It's really that simple. It's really step by step by step. It's not magic. It's just basic steps. And it's a lot of fun nowadays. It's, and it's really fun to do things and you can apply it to what you're interested in to music or art or whatever. So I would simply just say, take a computer programming course, even if you're not a computer science major, and you can learn enough to make your job more fun and more powerful with computer programming. If you did want to be a a software developer, take more computer programming courses. And if you want to be an artificial intelligence or machine learning user, you don't need to do too much more than take those programming courses because the tools are easy to use if you're a programmer. If you want to be an AI or ML, those are the acronyms for artificial intelligence and machine learning. If you want to be a researcher to work in that field and make it better, then you need to take some math and basically some probability and some statistics and some linear algebra and some calculus. And those are the kind of things that you know you would get probably in high school and certainly in college. They're not exotic. That's a whole wide range of ways you can become part of artificial intelligence. How does linear algebra help you in that? That is a great question because it turns out the actual, al- an algorithm is what they call the recipe of a software. It turns out that a lot of, and it's a lot of math that goes under the hood because computers don't have ideas like we have. They just do numbers. Like the screen you and I are looking at is just different pixels with different colors mm-hmm. to the computer. Those colors are numbers and language. When we talk back and forth, it's just numbers to the computer. And so to process all of those numbers really quickly, it turns out that they put them into like a matrix, like a, like a, like a two-dimensional matrix, and they have to calculate it really fast. And linear algebra is designed to calculate matrices really fast. And then calculus is used because you've probably seen a curve where there's a slope. Mm-hmm. Um, and to teach the computer... Like I told you a few minutes ago, we give it the right answer. Like this is the word Maison, this is the word house, this is a cat, this is a dog kind of thing. And it makes a really dumb guess at first. Like, oh, is that a banana, you know, or whatever? And like, no, it's a cat. 
And so it tries again, oh, is that, you know, whatever, and uh, it gets it wrong. But not only do we tell that it got wrong, but we tell it which direction it got it wrong. Like you're going farther, you know, like the, the old game, you know, you're getting warmer, getting colder. Yeah. And the way you tell a computer getting warmer or colder is you actually, it draws a curve and that's called the error curve. And you wanna get the error curve as low as possible. So you use calculus to find which way to go on that curve to find the lowest error. And so that's why you need calculus. So calculus is actually useful. So specifically for artificial intelligence research or engineer, what kind of college degree is needed to practice in that? Almost anything in the STEM fields, really. I mean, you could be a computer science major, you could be a math major. But to be honest, a lot of our best artificial intelligence engineers came from biology or physics or astronomy because uh, those fields also use a lot of math. Nowadays, they all use computer programming and they're all trying to find answers to these questions using computers that we couldn't do just without computers. So I would say, I wouldn't, I would just say, follow an, a, a field that you think you're really interested in. And there's a good chance that artificial intelligence is touching it and you could kind of switch fields. It's not like being a doctor where you have to follow a certain path and be certified. Right now, it's a pretty wide open field and, and you can just follow your kind of interests and you're still not going to be very far from artificial intelligence. Now, if you want to be, as I said, one who actually develops the field further, then you need the math and the programming and the statistics, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. What about like bachelor's degree versus PhD or master's? Yeah, it's, and I don't think it's still not really common for there to be an artificial intelligence degree or a machine learning degree at the bachelor's level. So just follow whatever you're interested in, follow, to take math or some other STEM degree or take a non-STEM degree, but take at least one programming course, computer programming mm -hmm. course. Mostly you'll get the specialization once you go for a master's degree. And then if someone doesn't go to college, is the field still as wide open or are there other limitations or opportunities? Um, we, have a, we have a program at work to try and get people into the field without college degrees, mainly for diversity in our field because the college degrees, especially the higher degrees are less diverse. When people are certainly, you know, from whatever background could certainly do this job if we gave them on the job training. So there are some programs where you don't need a college degree. They're rare, but they're getting there. So, but it's so easy anywhere to take a computer programming course, whether it's in high school or at community college or even online to get a certificate. And there's so many online courses that teach this. And with that kind of knowledge, you might be able to get an internship at a company. And then once you have the internship, you learn on the job. So I wouldn't say you need to have a college degree. You could absolutely go to community college and certainly go online if you have the ability to go online. So there's a lot of ways into this field. Okay. And then one final question for you. What advice do you have for someone who has no idea what they want to be when they grow up? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just, just kind of do what you think might be interesting and, you know, and, and there's a job in it that, you know, someone can give you a paycheck for it. That's what I think is important. And then you'll figure out, you'll sort of gravitate towards, you know, something that's more interesting or you'll, you'll like it or you'll change jobs like I did. So I would just kind of do what you think is interesting as long as you can, you know, get a paycheck for it. And then you'll learn from there. Don't, you, you don't have to learn everything in school. School just sets you up to learn more after you leave school. Sounds good.
Well, that's all I have for you today. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And if any of our listeners have questions for Dan, you can contact him at dan.lair at gmail.com. That's D-A-N dot L-O-E-H-R at gmail.com. Before we wrap up, who do you want me to interview next? Online tutor, translator, book illustrator, tour guide? Email me your ideas at realitycheckpodcast10 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.